Yeah, yeah. Surprise for you, buddy. Open the fridge. We got in here. Welcome to the fridge. Alright. I went beer shopping. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Purple Fringe, the show where we discuss the high-end of low-end digital media production. My name's Jonathan Lang and I'm with Chris Milray. How are you, Chris? G'day, mate. I'm well, thank you. And uh, as you say, it's uh, another episode with a whole load of... Uh of new products and things that are just seeming to grace the earth at the moment. There's, there's all sorts of things happening out there in the world of media. Mm, there are indeed. But um, first, some follow-up from our last episode, Chris. We were talking about the uh, the new drones, one from GoPro and one from DJI, the Mavic. Now, one of the things we said was that uh, we like the GoPro better because it sort of came as a, a preconditioned kit. It had a backpack and it all fitted in nicely. Turns out we were a bit wrong on that, Chris. The uh, DJI does come with an option. Not necessarily with the lower end model, but you can get an option with a backpack so it all fits in nicely, just like the GoPro Karma. Um, what are your thoughts, Chris? $300 more, though. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's a lot of money for that's going to buy you a third of a GoPro. It is, but uh, you're, you're talking at the reasonable high end. The, the thing with the Karma and the Mavic is they're not out yet, and the, the Karma is looking like it's going to be late this year, if not early next year, before we see them in this country. Apparently, America's getting the first shipments, from what I'm told. But um, I don't know. I reckon I'm leaning back towards the Mavic now. Yeah, well, DJI have been in the game uh, of drones and, and camera-mounted drone technologies for a lot longer, and I think as far as knowing the things that happen over time with you, certainly you and wear and tear and hmm. and um, and also just the protection it has for not just hitting items. It has all that amazing sensor Which the GoPro it. doesn't have. <clears throat> you know what? I, I, I think they've both uh, got an audience. Hmm. GoPro probably for the slightly uh, cheaper side of things, hmm. a bit more recreational, and the DJI Mavic still feels like it might... Um, be a little bit more of a serious tool. Certainly something yeah. if you're using it professionally, it's safer to use, questionably. Yep. It's faster in terms of its top speed. It's lighter in terms of its weight. It's more compact, but it is more expensive. And there is one other thing, and that is the, the remote control. So in that pack with the backpack, you do get a remote, but you do have to slot in your phone to take full advantage of the remote to actually be able to see from the camera's perspective. You can still control it without a phone or with a phone if you want, but if you do want a physical hardware remote and want a viewfinder, you have to use your phone, which is the one big downside for me. But now that it does come in a full kit, I think, as I said, I'd, I'd go the Mavic. Yeah, and probably get a dedicated uh, phone to go with it. Yeah, I wish you could use it with an iPod Touch. I wonder if you could do that. I don't know. It's way if it's wireless. Mm. Um, who knows? We'll yeah. find out when they come out. We'll try to get our hands on them. Mm. But I actually put in an order today for one. So oh, really? Just as an aside, not hey. for me, for a colleague. But uh, that colleague will have me knocking on his door, and uh, yes, I'll be borrowing that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's take it out as soon as it arrives. It sounds yeah. like fun. Mm. All right, on to the news, Chris. Kick us off. Well, uh, Sony, and of course, uh, I mean, we we I, I, we talk a lot about Sony on this show, but that's we because do. they've released a lot of stuff since we've started this show. I mean, Sony, we were talking about this earlier, are spraying the market with products at the moment. They are. It's a bit of a buckshot of phones and cameras yeah. and audio stuff and switches and all kinds of things. And I mean, I went overseas uh, last year, this time last year, and I, I remember buying like you know the RX10 when it was, or the Series Two when it was 
brand new, and I was I got one of the first ones in the country. Yeah. And there's been another model since yeah, then. Yeah, the RX and 10 three came out. Yeah, six and now, months later. And now we've also got a new RX 100, and we've got it's like everything's happening. And, and and the interesting thing is, Chris, that they keep the old ones, well, the so-called old ones. They're probably six months or a year old, but they keep them around. So it does get a little bit complicated in the product range yeah, very quickly. Often have three models. I know with the new 6500 coming out, they've you can still get the 64 and the 63. Uh, no, oh, no, 63, 63 and the 62. Whatever the previous one, 6,000 maybe. I think it went 6,000, 6,000, was it 6,100 as well? Uh, I've lost track. That's there the was... problem. There's so many of them and they keep going out. <laughs> yeah, and um, I know they've done four models now. And um, yeah, so this is the latest iteration of Sony's A6000 series. Yep, so this, for those unfamiliar with the camera, is a, a small mirrorless APS-C sized sensor camera and one that's been pretty popular. And it seems like only a couple of weeks ago that the 6300 came out. Turns out it was more like six months ago, but it's not that long ago that this previous gen came out and they've updated it already. They are keeping the old one around. Um, look, they're not massively different, but there are a few key differences. And one of them is a new stabilization system that they've introduced on the 6500. Yeah, they realize a lot of people were using them for video and walking around with them and taking video. And I guess with the technology that they'd uh, put into the A7 uh, and the A7S, they've they've taken that same or similar five-axis stabilization and applied it to a slightly smaller chip, uh, and have effectively, you know, put a a very impressive little package behind the sensor to keep everything smooth. Yeah, well, it's saying five stops equivalent for stills, so that's a fair bit of stabilization. That's a, that's lot. a lot of stabilization. They, interestingly enough, unlike uh, Olympus, for example, haven't said anything about if you combine a stabilized lens with their stabilized sensor. Now, Olympus say you get an extra stop when you do that. Sony, interestingly enough, haven't said anything about that, so perhaps you don't get any advantage if you add a stabilized lens. But, hey, five stops is is a fair bit to, be, to begin with, so that's pretty good. It's got a touchscreen on it, which um, is something new. Uh, it's the sort of camera that I think maybe a touchscreen is advan- uh, sorry, advantageous. A lot of the time a touchscreen, I find, just gets in the way and you end up with smudges all over your screen. But since this isn't a large camera, you don't have a lot of physical buttons. So a touchscreen might be... Might be a good thing on this camera. Mm. And to be honest, pressing the uh, the focus button and then scrolling around left, right, up and down to get to something and, and then clicking on it and okaying it does get a little bit uh, arduous on those cameras. So I, I think the touchscreen is pretty welcome, especially because they've done something that I've never seen before on a camera, which I think is genius, which is when you're using it up against your eye with a... Uh, viewfinder, yep. um, you can actually still touch the touchscreen and use it like a trackpad. Yeah, that that sounds like a really sensible way to add a bit of, um, I don't know, tactile control to the, the otherwise um, untactile system. I mean, I don't know if your thumb between your cheekbones, you know, yeah, you might eye... stab yourself in the eye occasionally, yeah. <laughs> but um... no, it should be okay yeah. thinking about it ergonomically. If it's a touchpad, you can just scroll. I don't know if it'll be a sort of mouse style system or if it's just positioning where you focus. Yeah, I'm not sure. They didn't go into much detail, but if you could use it for a variety of things, it it could be interesting. But focus, I think, would be the main one you'd kick off with because, yeah, the SLRs, you've generally got a little joystick, which is 
okay. It's not amazing, but it works. This could be even more fluid than a dedicated joystick. It could be quite a revolutionary thing that uh, other players have missed out on. Oh, it's clever. Hmm. Um, of course, the older models, especially the 6300, had an issue where they would shut off when filming video yeah, uh, so after about 10 minutes. If you did a test with shooting 4K at 100 megabits, even at 25 frames per second, generally you'd find the thing would shut down due to overheating issues after you know, 12, 13 minutes. Um, some people have done some tests and it's suggested that uh, that has been fixed. You can watch a very boring video on YouTube, which is basically about 17 minutes worth of two cameras and one of them shuts off, being the 6300 and the 6500 does not. Uh, not the most exciting video, but at least it proves that they have well, seemingly fixed that issue. It's got a faster processor in it, Chris, so look, it's better at, at um, you know everything, really, in terms of the menu system and getting around the camera, but also dealing with higher ISOs. And it also um, translates through to more frames per second in the buffer. So I think you can do about 300 JPEGs, and then you can do about 100 RAWs plus wow. JPEG, which is a pretty impressive number. And that's at 11 frames a second. So you're triggering relatively... Like quick, you know, for something that's handheld, it's you know you're, you're talking, yeah, you're talking faster than the five Ds of the world. So something that's, that's sorry, so that's portable. It's yeah. like oh, I should say handheld. They're all handheld, but for something <laughs> yeah. that's like a, a small um, non DSLR build, that's yeah, yeah. And look, other little features like uh, you can do touchscreen uh, focus uh, racking oh, okay. uh, or rack focus rather. Um, which, you know, it's not amazing, but th that can be nice if you just very quickly want to, to do a nice effect with your focus. You can touch on the screen and it mm. does the autofocus. As long as you uh, pick an area of contrast, that should work reasonably well. I've always found with that sort of style of refocusing, on, especially on the smaller cameras, they tend to jump to the focus. Mm. So if it is doing rack focus, one thing they don't do is they don't do a um, graduated slowdown. Mm. Uh, so they'll just pull, it's like, stop. And it's just yeah. a real, got this real jumpy no feel. Easing. If there was easing, Using in and out on the end and start of it, I think that would be great. And I know Sony have had the technology to do that for, what, 10 years or so, because even with their old HD cameras, you could have programs where you'd program an A and a B focus selection, and you could jump between the two. Mm. Um, and honestly, if they just made a system where you touched it and it just eased into it, that would be... Yeah, that'd be, be great. Maybe they've sort of addressed this. They seem to have really... This camera really seems to be refined. It's the same build, the same body, interchangeable lenses, which is great. Yeah. Um, and a smaller sensor, but it will take the bigger glass and, and just center crop it. Of course, it's the same lens system that something like an FS5 or an FS7 or those, those sort of uh, entry-level production cameras will use as well. So you could potentially use this as a B camera for um, you know something where if you really needed a super cheap B camera... Yeah. Look, speaking of the price, Chris, it's thirteen ninety nine, which uh, it's not too bad. It's more expensive than its predecessor, but you know that's not, when not you're entirely expensive for this style of camera. Stabilization stabilization, and you know, yeah, and and a touchscreen option, and and the ability to just continuously shoot four K. I mean, it's yeah, it's definitely an upgrade from. Yeah, its look, previous. if you had maybe the. Well, not the previous generation, but the one before that, you might look at upgrading. In fact, I already know someone who does have the 6300 and they're considering upgrading. So, you know, all your lenses are obviously going to stay the same. So it might be worthwhile if some of those uh, new features are worth it to you. Mm. But I'd also point out that the 6300, which is its predecessor, is a very good camera. Yeah. As is even the 6000 is a fantastic camera um, as a holiday camera. If you're not shooting in pitch black dark and you, for an everyday camera, beautiful images out of all of them. I wouldn't say that the dynamic range is particularly going to be, you know, hugely better throughout the range or anything like maybe slightly better over the 6000 but mm. even that is a fantastic pocket camera if you want to be able to put pop it, 
proper lenses on it and throw it in your backpack, you know, with a, yeah, with a cheap... Yeah, so it's not quite pocketable anymore once you put a lot of proper well, lenses on I it. I don't know. If you put a, like, uh, they've got a fairly short... It's not pocketable, it's, but yeah. the 50 mil... There's a few pancake lenses and stuff that are pretty good and some primes that uh, are, not, are not too large, but as soon as you go to a Zoom... It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely not. slingable, like around your neck, and, yeah. and forget about it without you know the weight of a DSLR. I mean, yeah. they're fantastic little cameras. So you know, and I know that some of the the pro guys have sort of said, well, look at you know, you can get away with shooting this, especially if you're in areas such as you know internationally, you're trying to get shots, you know, where you don't want to be obvious with a big camera and and poked mm. at you know as media. Yeah, look, I think it's a, a different use case scenario. I was actually listening to a podcast the other day where a guy and his wife were professional tutors and they used uh, 5D Mark IIs when they first came out and they actually switched to the Sony A-series, the full-frame sensors, and he's actually gone back now and he's bought the uh, the 5D Mark IV because of speed and physical control which you and, and also battery life, which you don't get. However, as you say, if you are travelling and trying to travel reasonably light or you want to be a little bit less conspicuous then these smaller body cameras can can definitely have their pros. But I tell you what's even smaller. That's the, the... Ricoh Theta SC. Doesn't stand for StarCraft. I'm not sure what it does stand for, Chris, but uh, it's a new version of our uh, beloved 360-degree camera. Let's back it up. The Ricoh was the first that I was aware of anyway. Um, yeah, little... first sort of commercial all-in-one 360 panoramic video, whatever you want to call it, camera. It's basically, what is it? It's like a magic wand with two... It's a candy bar phone with a lens on either side. Yes, it is. It's it's a thin candy bar with two lenses, one on each side, and uh, effectively mobile phone uh, sensors in it, and it can record 360 video with a single push of a button. Yep, and you don't have to do all the stitching in uh, Autopano or any of those applications later on. You just output it, upload it to YouTube, and people can watch your 360-degree video. So this is a new version, and you'd think, oh, a new version, it must be better and improved. And look, it is in a couple of areas. It's now you know a little bit lighter weight and has a, a higher fastest shutter speed of one eight thousandths of a second if you're taking 360 degree photos in bright light maybe that's something that's worthwhile to you but apart from that they've actually removed a few features chris yeah well as far as i know um it can't stream anymore which questionably i mean uh, i would argue the first one couldn't stream properly anyway chris or at least not in quality that was worth watching so, yeah, there we go. This, the five-minute limitation's been imposed on it. So if you wanted to, for instance, record your band playing an entire set from the roof or something like that, you couldn't do that. <laughs> I'd argue this is possibly a good thing, Chris. It stops long 360-degree videos that have nothing going on from being recorded. But, you know. So five-minute limitation. And, look, my biggest qualm with it, uh, having done a fair bit of 360 stuff recently, is that its center cut is going to be fairly low resolution. If you look at it, it's 1080p, as far as we know, for the entire thing stitched together. So that means that it's about, uh, well, nine, half 1920, so you're looking at sort of 960 uh, pixels per side. Um, and if you think of an image, uh, like a full GoPro-style image at 960, I mean, we've never even had a GoPro that low. I think the very first one was. But then we, when we're center cropping out of that, um, which is only going to be about 400 pixels worth of resolution in the center crop. Now, your VR playback for resolution is pushing... Center cropped about probably 700 pixels, 600 pixels. So it's already up sampling. And the biggest thing you can do with 360 to make it look good is down sample it. Um, 
uh, look, this is a toy fun camera to to yeah. for your kids. Yeah, look, it's, <laughs> it's I have used them and they're great for certain things. They're nice because they are so small and lightweight. You can attach them to things and places you couldn't attach like a larger GoPro rig. But yeah, the the quality isn't amazing. Um, it was interesting early on in the 360-degree video stages because you could do it very quickly and very cheaply. But, you know, it's, as you say, Chris, it's a bit of fun. It's a toy. It's an experiment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you can't use this for serious 360-degree work. So, John, would this be very much uh, a bit of fun on holiday to um, just give people a sense of maybe a, a situation, time and place, maybe yeah. a bit of fun at and a look, dinner party. And look, you can party. take 14 megapixel photos, so you could have some fun with that perhaps. Like, yeah. you know, get all your friends around on the beach and jump in the air and take a photo or, or whatever it may be. So you could definitely have some fun with this thing. It's just not a serious production tool. And it has a one uh, eight thousandth shutter, so theoretically outside of you, the sun, you yeah, could you actually could do that and do the freeze fun shot. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm kind of sold on it. It's, it's a fun... Three hundred dollar, you know, uh, little pocket stick that you pull out, and yeah. does it have a case or something that you pop over the top so you can whack it? Don't in your know pocket? if this one did. The older ones you could get a case. Um, not sure about this one. To be honest, the cases weren't anything amazing on the old ones. So they were just there to stop you scratching the lens. So they were sort of soft cases. But again, you you don't want a hard case for this. No, because... but I would have thought some sort of thing that just goes clip like a lens cap. Because as far as mm. I, I know, they don't have lens caps. Not on. first party. Um, no. Maybe there's a third party one, but there's no first party one. I just ones would have thought that would have been a thing that would be so vital just to have something that clips over the top of it because it's a little you know, candy bar. It just goes click and clicks on it like clamps on it, even just a, a 10 cent piece of plastic. Because mm. the first thing you're going to do when you put it in your pocket is destroy the lenses otherwise. You'd need or put it in an unnecessary case. So, I don't know. so low res that you probably wouldn't notice, Chris. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Another Sony story, Chris, the Cybershot RX100 Mark IV. So before we get Mark into the four. specifics... Mark V, I apologise. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Um, before I get into it, let's talk about the Mark IV. Well, yeah. The so Mark IV and the Mark III and the Mark II and the Mark I. They're probably still all available through Sony, knowing them. This is an interesting little camera. We were talking about being inconspicuous and travelling lightweight before. This is the camera for you if you would like a Sony camera and you'd like to travel lightweight. It With is, a built-in lens. This is a fixed lens, fixed zoom lens, uh, unlike their very expensive but very nice uh, cameras that Sony make. This is a, a fixed zoom lens, one-inch sensor travel camera. Or it could be used for other things, but it's ideally used as a travel camera. In fact, a colleague of mine bought the the version four and used it on his trip to Japan, and he found it to be a fantastic little device. And it it is a fantastic little device. I would argue it's uh, perhaps a little bit expensive, and the sensor is a little bit small for my taste, but it does have a lot of positive features. So this one hasn't changed the recipe too much. It's still a, a 24 to 70 equivalent 1.8 to 2.8 lens, which is a, a pretty nice sort of lens. Um, it does add uh, phase detection AF to focus as fast as 0.05 seconds, uh, which is pretty quick, Chris. That's pretty zip, yeah. So, look, that's the main thing they beefed up on this particular model over the version 4 is the phase detection AF system. It also, as the A6500 uh, did earlier, they beefed up the, the processor for general use of the camera and, and buffering images. And that also means that their slow-mo mode, and this is quite amazing, I reckon, Chris, that these little tiny cameras can do this sort of stuff, but it's basically doubled the amount of, of slow-mo you can do. So if you're shooting at 960 frames per second in slow-mo mode, you can now get eight seconds of that, which is 
a fair bit. Yeah, the previous one only did about uh, three it seconds, I think. Four seconds, so four they pretty seconds, much doubled it, yeah. Which is great. Um, and look, more impressively, I think one thing they have done with this camera by the sounds of it is they've at least doubled, if not tripled, the memory that's in it for um, for filming with it. I for mean, buffering. This thing must have a gig of RAM in it, at least, if not more. It has a 24 frames a second burst mode. In, in full res photos. Well, it's not full res. It's 5.5K. Yeah. Well, which is full res of this particular sensor, 20 megapixels. Oh, of course, because yep. it's 5.5K wide. Yep, so that's 20 megapixels, gives you roughly 5.5K, oh, and you're geez. shooting at 24 bursts, which is 24 film, so you get maybe six seconds worth of 5.5K. Well, yeah, I think it's a bit less than that. It's probably more like three seconds, so be, but it's still one, yeah. two... Three. If your action hasn't happened in there, and if you're a, you've yeah. got no idea with your button. But what I want to know is, can you quickly click again and refill the buffer? Because what I want to see is the kind of thing where you get something and then it finishes, and you can release the button, and it will keep the last three seconds. No, that, I don't think so. I think it'll be like most cameras, and they'll just sit there with the red light blinking, writing the memory card for a second or two or three or five, and then you'd be able to, to do it again. Seconds, yeah. But look, I, I think that's a fun feature. I can't really see myself using that too much. How often do you need to shoot 5.5K 24 video, Chris? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be much sharper than shooting 4K. But I mean, if it's shooting and say, but that's in the JPEG mode, not the RAW mode, isn't it? I think so. I may be wrong on that, but I think it would be JPEG. But it would be good for something like um, some sort of sports thing or if someone's doing diving or something like that. But I mean, then you really want to do your slow motion and you can shoot 100 frames per second on it. Get that Olympus. What was that doing? 60 frames per second raw? Well, yeah. So, I mean, you, you can shoot 100, 100 frames. So, I don't know. At that kind of point, I guess it is good if you want to yeah, get like the moment, you know, if you've got, I don't know. See, but at that point, you'd be using a camera that's something bigger and better for capturing yeah. moments for, for doing anything that's sort of like a wedding or anything. I don't know. Look, it's a pocket camera that does a hell of a lot. We'll yeah, look, that. if you are looking, as I said, I find the sensor too small for my aesthetic, but if you don't mind that aesthetic that you get from a one-inch sensor and you are going traveling and you want a nice camera that you can stick in your pocket, there are not many other better options than the Sony RX100 series. They are a seriously good camera, and if you like the look of a one-inch sensor, then you can't go too far wrong. What would you have in your pocket as, a, as an alternative to this? Uh, I always get the model number wrong. I like the Panasonic, I think it's LZ or LX100, because it has a, a micro four-thirds sensor in it. It's one of the only cameras. There aren't many fixed-lens cameras that have a four-thirds sensor, and it's a 1.7 uh, aperture on that lens all the way through, I'm right. pretty sure. And for me, for my taste, the fact that you've just got a little bit more on that sensor, it, it does does the job for me. Right. But that's, so, an old, that's an old camera now. It's a 12-megapixel camera. Uh, relative to the Sony, in many respects, it's a worse camera, but... I, I just love a big sensor. So we're waiting or for Panasonic to release a new one of those. When they release a new one, I will be very close to buying it without even seeing it sort of thing because I have used the uh, the current one and even though it's 12 megapixel, which is starting to push it these days, I, I find it's pretty good for a small fixed lens camera. Obviously, if you're happy to swap out the lenses, there's lots of options. But if you want a fixed lens, then... Hmm. Because I don't know about you, Chris, but I find... Look, I carry, I'm going to Japan, as you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be carrying a 6D. Uh, the reason I'm not carrying a 5D is the 6D's got the built-in GPS. And as I'm wandering around Japan, I want it to capture the GPS data so I can look back in years to come and go, oh, I know where that was. Now, 
the other thing about it is the 5D has a much better autofocus. I don't care when I'm traveling. I don't need to be tracking subjects that much. I'm not shooting, you know, people walking towards me or sports or wildlife. It's a 6D. Or anything like it's still that. pretty good, mate. It's, a, it's okay. <laughs> it's full frame camera. It's got GPS. It's got Wi Fi. You can get that beauty. Will, Are you going to yeah. take a prime as well as a. I am going to take a 24 to 70 2.8 and probably a 35 1.4 and maybe, if I can fit it in the backpack, a 135 F2. Right. Uh, that will be, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That will be my kit. However, my point I'm trying to make is if you drop down to uh, something like the, the A6500 that we chatted about earlier, Chris, once you stick a zoom lens, a 2.8 zoom lens on there, yes, it is smaller, but it's still not pocketable. No. And therefore, I'd rather just carry the extra weight and have the, the real deal, so to speak. And if I am going to have something that is compromised, then it damn well better fit in my pocket. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about with this style of camera. Absolutely. And the um, the the Panasonic is another Canon. I mean, all the brands have their pocket point yeah, shoots. Canon. Their G Canon series not, is probably the closest you yeah, get. Yeah, and they're not even really all that pocketable. Yeah, so, they are still a bit chunky, aren't they? As much as I love Canon, I, yeah, once you go below, below their SLRs, I struggle sometimes to see why you'd buy them over the Sonys and the Panasonics of the world these days. Well, something that uh, I think would be confusing a lot of people right now is another camera. It confused uh, me, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, look, let's let's um, let's talk about something that I think is, uh, I'm going to call it equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of brands out there that have been around for many years. They have the advantage of like so much money behind their brand that they can throw at a new product. Like when Samsung got into cameras, you know, they obviously went in full tilt and they invested a hell of a lot of money. Uh, into you know developing products and creating and creating hype and the rest of it. Now, what if you're a, a new brand that's coming in and I mean you've got access to a lot of other parts, a lot of the same parts a lot of people have, even a mm. lot of the intellectual property and understanding of how to build like processing and things like that. There's a lot of information out there now, you know, for and de- development kits and things that go with uh, sensors that Sony provide and the like. So. Is there a room in the market for a new camera manufacturer in the DSLR or a sort of small sort of range market? And I would argue that it's already pretty saturated. Um, yeah, and in the SLR region, I'd love another player. Yeah. But this, unfortunately, is, is something that's... Well, it's an entry-level camera by a little company uh, called Yee. Um, and they typically do, um, well, they've done GoPro sort of knockoffs, like these little action cameras that have been very well received, mind you. Like people have kind of liked the, the little things. They've done uh, home security cameras. They've done all sorts of stuff. They even do a little gimbal camera, a uh, little knockoff of, uh, um, what you call it, a, a DJI kind of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now they also do uh, selfie sticks, so let's not um, let's yeah, not okay. get too excited here. Yeah. Um, hey, but selfie sticks with gimbals. There's market. <laughs> John, <laughs> quick, we've made that, our money. That, that idea. <laughs> um, they've introduced a new camera called the M1, a uh, basically a micro four thirds camera. Uh, it comes with a lens. Uh, a 12 to 40, which is about a, what, 24 to 80? Roughly, In, yeah. in equivalent. Yep. And they, and that's F2.5 to F5.6, so it's, you know, it's your fairly bog mm, standard. Yeah. And Hit they lines. were marketing it to begin with uh, for $330. Yep. What have you got to say? Uh, for $330, it would pique my curiosity. Yes. Sony IMX269 Micro Four Thirds sensor, which is, you know, quite a high-end sensor, 20 megapixels. Mm. 
Um, using the GXH from Panasonic. It is. It has three inch touch screen on the back. Uh, they're also offering um, a 42 mil prime at 1.5. Uh, which they'll bundle with the camera for uh, apparently... 42 at 1.5? Uh, sorry, at 1.8. Okay. No, what 1.5? So 1.8. And 1.8. that's an 120 bucks US extra. Right. Pretty cheap uh, pretty cheap gear. It even comes with a mechanical shutter. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're really sort of aiming at that market, that same A... Uh, that Sony A market. 6500, yeah. Okay. Now, here's the problem. For 330 bucks, that was a bit of a bargain. Mm. Uh, US. US, or even uh, with that. So it would have been, what, 440 or 450 with the double lens kit. Mm. But, of course, they only offered that as a price for the first... 12 days or so, 15 days. I think we've seen similar things in the video camera realm, and that is that we've got this company that no one's ever heard of that has come into the market and they've purchased off-the-shelf parts, which there's nothing wrong with that, but the rest of the system and the ecosystem is yet to be fleshed out. So things like the processing of the images, the raw data off the sensor might be okay because it is a bog-stand sensor, but these days you need a little bit of finessing to get the very best out of the image. You don't have the support networks, the warranties, the all this sort of uh, customer service stuff with these companies that you do from the, the Sonys and the Canons and the Nikons of the world. Um, also, I worry a little bit about the user interface. From what I can see, Chris, uh, that hasn't been developed all that much. It's uh, very uh, utilitarian. It does um, have this guide to shooting, though, where it will draw outlines of things to shoot, and you can so line. So you can then line up your subject matters and pose them in all these like different positions. Rule of third stuff, or no, no, no. This is in. It's a full like. It's showing someone how to pose and where you should have like a table and where you should do all your parallax. And it gives uh, you a uh, scene like a sort of an outline built-in tutorial. Yeah, and then you line everything up over the top of that as a. It's like a creative inspiration layer. Right. I've never come across that on a camera before. I thought it was quite an interesting. That sounds thing to interesting add in. and horrifying. <laughs> um, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to feel about that. It's called the Master Guide. The Master Guide. Yep. It shoots 4K. I'll give you that as well. Its mm. design is classed as minimalist. Now, it doesn't have many buttons on <laughs> is it. Is that it's... because I couldn't get around to doing a lot of stuff? It's minimalist. Well, look, it's got a couple of rotaries on it at the top. It has the you know the option to choose between aperture and shutter priority and the rest of it. It has then a like a master sort of um, scrolly, and then the rest is all done with touchscreen a la Blackmagic. They've kept it really mm. simplistic as far as design. It looks quite beautiful as a camera. Yeah, like design-wise. Honestly, Chris, uh, if this was cheaper, <laughs> it might pique my interest, but it falls into the um, too hard basket for me. I think it, it's the sort of thing I used to be interested in when it was technology for technology's sake. Now I actually want a lot of that other stuff that the bigger companies will provide for me. If you have some money to blow and you want a toy to fiddle with, this looks like a, a fun toy. But if you want something for production and you just need to get the job done, I'm not sure this is... Going from the cheaper end of the spectrum to the higher end of the spectrum, Chris, Teradek. La la la. 360 live streaming with no PC. So this is the Sphere product. This is something they demonstrating uh, demonstrated a few months ago, but uh, we're now getting to the point where they're about to start shipping it. Just a quick overview of this product. It's uh, a product you can plug in cameras that are arranged in a, and arranged in an array. 
it's a hard sentence to say, Chris, after a, a beer is. or two, and arranged in an array. Uh, so you might have some GoPros or whatnot, and this stitches together those four cameras in real time via hardware and spits it out so you can record it or you can stream it. And you can control the stitching and the auto exposure correction and all that sort of stuff via an iPad. Um, so look, this is a, a pretty interesting product because it basically takes what did take quite a lot of CPU power and quite a lot of time and does it all in real time. It does. One thing it does offer you as well, especially on an iPad Pro, is 360-degree stitching in real time. Uh, so for monitoring, when you're trying to actually see what you're getting, you can actually throw the monitor at a client and they can have a look at it mm. and check it out as it's going. That's actually something that's pretty important. So this is the HDMI model, so GoPros, which output HDMI, be fine for that. There is an SDI model coming, so if you're using higher-end gear, that could be uh, of interest to you. Interestingly enough, Chris, it's got four frames of latency, which is really fantastic for, for what it's doing. Like, four frames of latency is kind of what you'd get with most HDMI products anyway, and this is stitching four lots of 1080p video in real time with only four frames of latency. This thing is a $3,000 product, and you might think, geez, that's expensive. But if you think that, then you haven't been on Teradek's website. Um, that's a very cheap Teradek <laughs> product. Teradek makes some crazy crap, which looks fantastic. Things like wireless HDMI and SDI video transmitters mm -hmm. that you start at that sort of price and then go up from there. Yep. So um, they do make a couple of cheap products, but uh, for the most part, this is high-end gear from this company. They do understand a lot about processing. Um, I haven't seen a lot of their. I haven't seen anything from them in the the realm of 360 before. Have you? No, this is their first product, I think. Right. The Sphere. So look, it's interesting, and it is very much at the the upper uh, price bracket of the the high end of low end digital media production. But it's something that if you have a, a paying client that needs this, there aren't really any other real-time options apart from something like a Ricoh Theta, and then you're going to get some pretty average quality out of that. So my initial thoughts would be Blackmagic's, you know those new little cameras? Yeah. The uh, What are they, uh, the little cube cameras they get? Uh, I forget what they're called. I forget what they're called too, but uh, we'll do some Googling. While Chris is Googling, real-time follow-up from earlier, the model I was talking about that there's a four-thirds fixed-lens camera is the Panasonic DMC LX100. Cameras like the Blackmagic Micro uh, cinema camera. I assume there's, I mean, you can get Micro four-thirds uh, fisheye lenses. Yeah. Um, and I reckon if you had four of those all bunched in with each other, uh, running off power, um, of course, you've got the option with those cameras to run uh, off RS-232 to control them remotely for exposure and things like that. So you could sit and actually uh, probably make a duplication cable and uh, and be controlling that remotely as well. So you've got remote control of your exposure and it'll be stitching all in real time. I mean, to me, that feels like a portable rig. I mean, when you look at them, $1,500 a camera, we'll argue 1000 for a lens. That would be for 10, 15000 bucks with the iPad Pro and all the hardware and tripods and bits for a, a portable real-time 360 streaming kit at a professional level. What, what do you think, John? Yeah, it's starting to get into the real money realm. But mm -hmm. again, if you've got some clients that are willing to pay for that sort of thing, then it's definitely an option. You and could, as I say, there aren't many other options at this point. You could potentially whack a GoPro. I mean, but GoPro have their their 360 real-time rig thing they've released, haven't they? Yeah, that's not real-time, though. 
Ah, so you can't. It's stream. just a mount. It, it, it is it's a rebadged color mount, basically. Right. Color is the French company that do a lot of the processing software that GoPro bought many years ago, and they've basically just taken their existing mounts and put a GoPro badge on the side of them. Yeah, right. So yeah, this is something a little bit different altogether. Brilliant. Oh well, this could be an exciting time. I mean, you know. Arguably, 360 uh, real time has got a little bit more value than um, pre-baked 360 stuff. You know, especially yeah, a if lot you've got more value. I think if you've got concerts, if you've got some kind of uh, situation where you want to see behind the scenes or real time unfolding yep. of an event, or you know, I was thinking of like when they had that. Uh, with the Greek uh, Grexit thing, they're all standing around. Imagine that if you'd have the thing where you could look from all around and see and do it. Yeah, protests and stuff like that. News, news. I think news could be amazing with this sort of stuff. If you can get this on the ground for something like a riot, that could be amazing. <laughs> but then we're talking $10,000 worth of Yeah, I know, but that's why you get insurance, Chris. <laughs> that's why you get a theatre. Yeah. <laughs> okay, throw it into the crowd and run. <laughs> just throw and run. Yeah. That's $300. You just shove your phone number on the bottom of it. You yeah, know. please return. Please return. <laughs> All right, Chris, that concludes our news for this week. So we've got a new segment on the show we're calling Old But Good. Yes. Shall, shall I start, Chris, or shall you? Uh, what have you got that's old that's good? Go on. Um, I have the Broadlink RM Universal Wi-Fi IR Remote Control plus cell phone and infrared devices. Uh, what the hell so is that? There. All I can see is something that says DX.com that means it's probably cheap. <laughs> yes, it does. Those unfamiliar with DX.com, it stands Oof. for Deal Extreme, which means that you get really cheap products and they take six months to get to you, which is fantastic because they show up in the mail and you go... I forgot oh, yeah. I got that. <laughs> I remember ordering that. So this thing's a little triangle. It's a little black triangle. It looks triangle. like a little spaceship. Jeez, look at um, that. It looked, no, what it reminds me of, Chris, is the original Apple Airport, which was this sort of spaceship design, and this is quite similar, a little bit more angular, and it's black. Okay, um, so right. basically this is an IR blaster that connects to your Wi-Fi network. Uh, for those unfamiliar with IR blasters, they're basically like a programmable remote control. Their sole purpose, though, is just to blast IR, and this can blast it in all different directions, in order to control things. So what do you control, Chris? Well, anything that's IR. It could be your air conditioner, it could be your television, your receiver, your your camera even, because a lot of cameras have remote controls. So. This thing uh, is powered off USB. Um, it connects to your Wi-Fi network. As I said, you can download an app, and then you can basically create a, a soft remote control on your screen, putting all the buttons in that you want, and then basically it learns from the original remote control. And then using your smartphone, you can control your device or multiple devices if you want. That's you can clever. also add in schedules and stuff like that. Now, this doesn't sound all that amazing if you've got to spend a lot of money, but I bought this for like $36 Australian, and I can control every single device that has IR via my phone or via timers. So it's almost mm. like a home automation device as well. And as I was looking at it, I came across a new version that they put out, which literally looks like a, a tiny Mac Pro, the, the cylinder trash can Mac Pro. It looks like they've shrunk that down. And it does the same thing, and it's $16 and has voice control, Chris, which just made me think what an age we live in where you can buy this tiny little thing that connects to Wi-Fi and has timers and, and voice control, and it's $16. And it so, runs on Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, uh, you plug mm. it into USB. So, look, this could be really cool if you wanted to do... I, I could think of a few reasons. If you wanted to trigger a shitload of cameras simultaneously, since it blasts IR from all directions, you could make everything record all at once for $16. Now, that's pretty cool. If you but think I mean, about it, that's if cameras have yeah yeah a lot of cameras which a lot have of IR. cameras have got IR. Yeah. So you know if you think about a, a custom 
starting controller that would cost quite a lot of money, whereas this is 16 bucks and it just blasts a shitload of IR and says, record everyone. And I guess the difference is, is this has a really powerful transmitter, where usually yeah. you've got a very sort of focused IR beam that you fire yeah. at a camera. Yeah. So if you could just program the, re- the command to record, as you say, yeah. that's a pretty cool... If, if it, they have a dedicated record and stop command, that would be good as well, because yep. you can blast record a few times instead yeah. of... Yeah, instead <laughs> button of on, just button off button and on, double button. tap. <laughs> and yeah, dreaded it. double tap. And they're all turning on and off. And yeah. Yeah. We Ooh. did that earlier when we were recording, Chris, didn't we, the double oh, tap? Oh, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so far out. That's for... for hey, for $16 bucks. US, I think, hey, you might as well buy one just for the fun of it. My only qualm, and this is just a security thing, is that it, how much security is it, it going to have on it as far as it's got voice detection, which means it probably has like a direct tap Turn in. on the cameras. Turn on the cameras. But also, I mean, you could probably potentially, uh, I guess, get an audio feed from it and just with the security, it probably has zero security on it. Not sure. I've got the old one, Chris, so I don't have to worry. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I just I worry about stuff like that, that it, it doesn't necessarily... How does it connect to the um, the Wi-Fi or, or as a device? Uh, WPA2, so it's it's pretty secure. Okay. Yeah. That's that's kind of cool. Anyway, that's... But that's, that's a great... Yeah, it was device. old, but it seems kind of good. And the app still works, and they're still supporting it? The app it? is better than it was uh, many years ago. Anything from you, Chris? Well, you just said name something that's old but good that, you know, you just can't get rid of. I mean, that sounds <laughs> like something for you. Yep. Something that there's a replacement for, but the replacements just, you know, don't necessarily have the charm. Honestly, when I need to blast a lot of light on a lot of stuff on the fly, um, as much as you can get these new LED panels and you can get big white scrims and all this stuff to, you know, to, to light up the set, it. it's, all, uh, it's all a lot of work to diff- get a nice diffused light. Sometimes you just need a, a nice diffused light source for cheap when you, you're trying to light something. Wouldn't recommend it for um, mission critical stuff, but as a you know a, a, a backup to your normal lighting kit, honestly, these cheap CFL lighting kits off eBay for you know 150 bucks for a three pack. The stands aren't the most rigid things in the world. You could probably no, you get, could probably blow on them and they might snap. But. Yeah, you can probably get some better stands, which yep. you hopefully have anyway. But um, they're just fantastic for especially the ones with the one giant bulb in them for. Putting three bulbs in, suddenly lighting up, you've got a thousand watts worth of nice sort of distributed lighting, you know, lighting up something, um, and it's only going to cost you a couple of hundred bucks. You and they often come with carry cases if you pay a little bit more and get yep. the premium kit. Get the get the carry case. Yeah, and you've just got this standby case of floodlight if you need it that'll mm. you know light something up. Um, and I just find it's handy. I mean, obviously, when you're doing, you know, your main interviews and things, it's handy to have something that's a little bit more pro in for you, and that's going to survive being carted around a little bit more. Um, yeah. But for for quick pull it out, we need to just flood some light out and make it smooth and make it warm, or even do a quick set or something like that. And uh, you don't have a huge budget. Uh, I just find they're they're really good for. for yeah. I agree, Chris. I, I had some of these in my home studio for a while, and look, I bought them earlier on. I think I spent two grand on them, but look, at the time, that was amazingly cheap, and now they're just ridiculously cheap. For 150 to 200 bucks yeah. for you know a fairly decent little pack, and yeah. uh, the only problem is they are fragile and they will break. So yeah. You know things like you gotta be if, careful screwing them in and taking them out and yeah, them and down. things like you know the 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 even the metal caps on the light bulbs will just screw off and just like you know um, expose mains wiring and stuff like yeah. they are 
honestly terrifying bits of kit. You've got to actually understand, probably get them tagged before you use them just to check that they're okay and they are functional. Yeah. Um, but look, for the price, you just can't get a nice flooded solid light, uh, which is fairly clean, you know, 55K or daylight even, you know, 7,000K for the price. It's just outstanding. So I don't know. That's something that is handy for the odd thing where you just need to, you know, bring out some light and you don't have a big budget. I, I don't know what else is out there for that price. Yes, you've got your redhead secondhand kits and things like that, but they get hot and yeah. they're heavy. And I was going to say, you can definitely buy redheads for a similar price, but they suck a heap of power and they get bloody hot. So, mm. Yeah, look. I don't know. It's it's just something that's still out there, and the LED revolution is cool with the new CRI LEDs and everything, especially with these side lit panels and stuff that have come out. Yeah, I reckon they're going to come right down in price. The flapjack lights, which we're going to talk about uh, probably in a show in the future, hmm. but uh, when those lights come down in price, that'll be when these CFL lights go out. But they've got to come down to three hundred dollars, two hundred dollars before they're going to knock this out. So. Hmm. All right, Chris, on to our beer of the week. Now, earlier on, we uh, heard a little bit of a preview of this, and this is the Hair of the Dog beer, Old Wive Ales. So, basically, we, we drank our local beer shop out of beer, and yeah. um, I I went beer shopping and found this in a amazing little homebrew shop uh, out in Point Cook, of all places. Uh, it's quite a, a hefty beer. It's referred to as an XPA. Yeah, look, interesting beer. This one changed, I thought, very much from the start to the end. It, um, it's very interesting. It's like a flavor that smell. You're pouring it out of the bottle and you get something in your mouth before it even hits your tongue. Um, I wasn't big on the aftertaste at the the start, but it's grown on me, I think, Chris. This has turned into something I quite like. What do you think? I love it. It's it's an IPA-ish, but it's it's got a bit more of a lagery almost edge to it, I would say, in a sort of strange kind of way. it's ext- there's nothing offensive at all about it. Like it's, um, it just sits. Its aftertaste is beautiful. Have you noticed that? Yeah, at the start I wasn't huge on it, but it, it did grow on me. It says citrus and pine, and yeah, I think that's it. The pine is what made, made me a bit curious. Perhaps I'm not used to that um, particular flavour coming at me, but it was pretty good overall. I thought it was a, a nice beer. An old wives' tale dot beer. I didn't even know there was a dot beer. Is that that's a thing? Is There's it? There's a dot everything, mate. I've got Jonathan Lang. No, I've got JWL dot photography. I've got you know all kinds wow. of domains that I spend too much money on and wow. don't really so achieve we could anything because get... everyone just googles it anyway. We could just purple fringe dot beer. We we could purple fringe dot beer. We could wow. purple fringe dot TV. We could purple fringe dot anything. Anything. Hmm. But it's called The Hair of the Dog uh, by Old Wives' Tale. Can we put the and, um, aberration? It's, uh, we could. It's fully independent, 100% independent, written in big writing. So thumbs up to the, the guys there. They've done a pretty good job. I would highly recommend this beer, actually. Yeah. It's not, not super cheap, but... Yeah. Damn well better than the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. Old Wives' Ales. <laughs> nice. Old Wives' Ales. That's a, that's a pun for you right there at the end of the show. All right, Chris, uh, thanks for another episode. I'm off to Japan for a few weeks, so we'll be back in a, in a month or so. But uh, until then, feel free to check out the show notes on the purplefringe.com. Follow us at TPF Show on Twitter uh, or send us an email. Our details are up on the website. Chris, till next time. Have a good time in Japan. Thank you. Ridiculous. Let's be quite grassy and 
There's a tropical sort of flavoured one in there as well. Tropical platypus. Or if you want something that's probably a little bit more show friendly, we've got these ones now. <laughs> I don't know what they are, but you are going to Japan. Yes, it looks like some sort of skull mask Japanese thing. Oh, there we go. It says on the side it's a Belgian pale ale. No. That's a sort of more... In style, I'm guessing, rather than where it was made. Yep. And then we've got the Hair of the Dog, of the dog XPA. All right, well, let's two of these, Chris. How about we go the Hair of the Dog? All right, the Hair of the Dog sounds like a plan. All right, you've selected the Hair of the Dog. Uh -huh. What are we? We're not a screw top? We'll have to find a bottle opener. 